Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'll be talking philanthropy, corporate partnerships and fundraising strategy with Tisha Archer. Tisha's career began in education before moving into healthcare and today operates as an independent consultant and is part of the X Factor Collective. Tisha, welcome. Thank you very much, Jake. So tell us about your first role in fundraising. Where were you and what were you doing? Uh, I fell into fundraising like so many people did. Um, surprisingly, I didn't grow up going, oh, I think I'm going to be a fundraiser when I grow up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was working in marketing at the University of Tasmania. And um, while it was a great job, it wasn't for me. It wasn't what I wanted to do and wasn't where I was at. It was very sort of sales focused. Mm. And I decided to make the move into a new role and a job at the university's foundation came up. Mm. And I applied and the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're there for seven years. What yeah. were you doing over those seven years there? Yeah, um, I had a variety of roles there. So starting off, I was um, a good old fundraising coordinator in a small team of uh, six or seven people. Mm. And I think I was the only full-time fundraiser in that team with other people having all sorts of other responsibilities, uh, including alumni or administration and those sorts of things. Um, and. In those first few years, I was really responsible for a bit of everything. So I had to write the annual appeals. Um, I had to uh, talk to people about bequests, do major gift fundraising. I uh, had responsibility for a pile of scholarships that I needed to manage and fundraise for. And the big university events like the UTAS dinner, which you know had 500 people as a stewardship event for donors. So. A bit of everything is a a great introduction to fundraising because I got to experience so many different aspects of it in a very short period of time. Yeah, great. What did you learn from those early years? Um, I learned don't let people tell you that's not how we do it here, (laughs) (laughs) which was something I I heard a lot in those early years coming from a marketing um, background. I think I was kind of used to being able to push some boundaries and even though my marketing experience was in in public libraries which aren't seen as the hub of innovation Mm. um, necessarily you know they've been quite similar for so many years I you know had that background in and a manager there that allowed me to test and try so many new things and so when I went into the foundation that's what I wanted to do as well and I was really lucky to have a um, director there who was very trusting and believed in my ability and was able to sort of say to me, well, give it a go. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And, um, and you know, you learn from that. And I think that really sort of set me up to say, well, you, sometimes you just got to try something new or try something differently mm. and, you know, see what happens. Yeah, great. And yeah. you said that you're over, you're covering so many different areas of fundraising. Mm. Were there specific areas that you found early on that you clicked with more and ones that you really want to, wanted to excel moving forward? Yeah, I think um, in those early years, I really loved the, the major gift space. And of course, that's where I ended up heading in the future. And I, that sort of love came from 
working with the, the scholarship program and I had a few um, opportunities very early on to try some you know mini major campaign kind of things and and one in particular really set me up in into loving that personal relationship um, that you can build with donors uh, I was fortunate unfortunate enough to be the uh, the staff member who was allocated to a family whose son had recently passed away at university um, and they wanted to fundraise a scholarship an endowed scholarship in his name for students who were studying in his course and um, it was a really, you know, this is within weeks of him him passing away and it was a really um, emotional experience And but it showed me the deep connection people can have to um, fundraising and, and philanthropy and I think that kind of changed the way I wanted to interact with people when it came to the work I was doing and uh, really tap into how people connect with causes. Yeah, mm. and fundraising is a tough profession. Uh, many will say, you know, yeah. you do long hours and the, um, it's more of the emotional reward that you get from it. And you've mm. just set an example there of that. Mm. Um, did that keep you going through the seven years that you were there? Did you see many other stories like this emerge? Yeah, I did. And um, so after a couple of years at the um, UTAS Foundation, uh, I moved into another area of the university at the Menzies Research Institute down there. and. Um, I, in that role, you know, working more in the health space and medical research space, you started you started to see more of people's uh, real reason for giving because you know they might have been suffering from disease or had a family member who was and wanted to see change in in the world, not just in their you know small community, but um, you know when people feel the issues of health affecting them or the ones close to them they become very passionate about it and that's you know a nice thing to be part of yeah great. Yeah. and then from there you moved um you changed roles and it was more of a um was it philanthropy and corporate partnerships role yeah. uh, with baker heart and diabetes institute yeah how did your previous role prepare you for this role yeah um my previous role was the reason i had that role in t totally really um like i was saying at the at the utas foundation i had a director there who um i guess saw something in me that he thought you know i could go far in this in this area and um he he had been the director of the foundation for some years and moved in to become the general manager of the menzies institute and uh when he went there he said would i come and mm. Uh, I was on maternity leave at the time and said, yeah, okay, why not? <laughs> um, love to give it a go. And, and so we set up a small team there and it was a really fantastic place to work. And over the years being there and, and building my confidence in being a manager myself and uh, building my own fundraising program, building my own strategy and all the actions that go with it, um, I was offered a, an opportunity at a university uh, here in Melbourne and as a deputy director. And at the time I said no, um, because I love Tasmania. You know, I'd been down there for six years. My son was born there and, and I had, you know, really enjoyed that time and wasn't ready for a change in lifestyle. But as it does in the small world of universities, the word got around that someone had been talking to me about that position. And uh, the, the general manager, this same person, Mark Bennett, um, went to the director of Menzies at the time and said, you know, how Atisha's gonna leave. It might not be this job, but it'll be some job. She's going to leave because she's getting opportunities. And at the time, the director there had just accepted the role as director at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. And uh, he came to me and said, don't go to the university. And I said, I'm not, so don't worry. <laughs> um, but at the same time, he said, if you want a job, come come with me to the Baker Institute. And so 
after lots of conversations, I, I ended up doing that. And I think, you know, I'm the victim of no national curriculum. Uh, I didn't do science from year eight onwards. Uh, so having had that few years at the Menzies Institute, getting a bit of a knowledge for medical research and, and how fundraising for that works, it really prepared me for going to Baker where really I was doing a very similar job um, as to what I was doing at Menzies, but four times bigger. Yeah. Yeah, four times the team, four times the targets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I guess let's go back to probably the first month there. Yeah. You, you start, where did you see yourself having the biggest impact there? Um, I think when I went, you know, I had been talking to the director about what he, you know, saw um, coming and he, he really wanted to see a big jump in the fundraising capacity of the institute uh, at the time. And, you know, Baker is one of the biggest institutes in, in the country, but it wasn't getting anywhere near close to what some of the other ones at comparable levels were, were bringing in fundraising. So we talked about a, a campaign early on. And when I arrived, um, my impact that I thought I could have changed very quickly into one of bringing the team together. Mm. Um, so I was responsible for the philanthropic and corporate partnerships team, which looked after uh, major gift fundraising, the, the mid-level donors, corporate partnerships and trusts and foundations. So in leaving the appeals and bequests um, to the other side of the, the team. Mm -hmm. And uh, the team was very siloed. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably a nice way of saying it. They all, all did good jobs and raised, you know, quite good funds, but no one was really talking to each other. And, um, and, you know, although a friendly environment, there was just not that interaction to get support from each other. And so I think in my time there, the biggest impact I had was was bringing together a really good team of people who we moved roles around and, and got people into areas where they could excel yeah. rather than being in roles where over years their roles had merged and you know, become something mm. <laughs> that maybe they didn't even understand at the time. How yeah. difficult was it to change that pattern within the organization? Um, it, it took some time. It took quite a few months. And I think the thing was, is we, you know, we quickly established very simple things like fortnightly team meetings. And every other week I'd meet with each of the staff members um, to talk through their, their individual goals and also did things like setting team KPIs rather than individual KPIs. So, and even for the admin support guys where they had a responsibility to meet fundraising goals. So they didn't have to fundraise, but they had to provide support that led to dollars being raised. And I think that changed it a little bit because where there was overlap like corporate partnerships and major donors and trusts and foundations where you can actually be speaking to the same person for all three in some cases, uh, the competition left the, between the team of who had access to who and who had priority to talk about what. Yeah. And so we could say, well, you know, if we're talking with this organization because they've got a foundation and a CEO who can give, who's the best place to lead it so that we all get the, the best outcome. And, and I think that really changed the, the thinking in the team there. And I was lucky to have a couple of just rising stars in mm. the team who, um, when I arrived, probably just didn't have the confidence to step up. And, um, and when I left, went on to amazing things as well. So yeah, yeah that's great. really good. Yeah. So what did you learn in your time leading a team? Um, I learned that people are unpredictable <laughs> and and sometimes the you know the diamonds are hidden in the rough um, and so I think you know we 
There was, I had lots of ups and downs at Baker with, with teams um, and with my team and, and outside of my team. And uh, at times it could be really difficult, but I think what I learned was talk, <laughs> um, be clear, be honest. Um, I'm sometimes accused of being blatantly honest. <laughs> But I think, you know, while that might have scared people early on, they became um, able to trust me because yeah. they knew where they stood with me. And, uh, you know, I've had, um, I've had and seen some pretty poor managers in the past and I knew that I wanted to um, be the kind of manager who people could come to mm-hmm. and they knew, uh, they knew where they stood. Yeah. After I'd spoken to them. So yeah. for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So which one was it more? More better? Oh, more worse? better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my bake- my experience at Baker was really um, a time where I grew a lot and grew in my confidence to be the um, type of fundraiser and, uh, and leader that I wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess pinpointing certain uh, aspects of your own leadership. Yeah. Um, what would you say works? Specifically, what would you say doesn't work? Oh, wow. <laughs> Good question. Um, what works? I think what works is um, I always make myself available. And and I've always said to people that no matter what, come and talk to me. Um, and I think that and – I've, and I've done that. I have been available to people and sometimes outside of work hours when they've needed it. Um, and I think that that just – you know, reassures people. Um, and also taking responsibility as a leader. You know, I think it's really important to, because um, I like to test things and try things and, and give something new a go that as a leader, you know, if I've asked someone to give something or they've wanted to give something a go, that I take responsibility for the outcome, especially when it's not great, yeah. um, and give credit where it's due. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was really important to me as I came up through my career that, um, that my manager at, at UTAS in particular always gave me credit when things were great and always took responsibility when they weren't. And I try to you know, emulate that in a lot of ways. Um, where it doesn't work, uh, it probably only hasn't worked when there's been a clash of personality. Okay. Um, and uh, I think where people have seen, um, you know, I'm, I'm competitive by nature and so I'm like, you know, I see a target and say, let's achieve 20% more than that. Uh, not just the target itself, I'm like that. Um, but I think where people have thought I'm competitive against them rather than just generally wanting to lift everyone is where it's, you know, kind of been harder. Yeah, yeah. great. Um, so what did you notice were some of the key differences in crafting a successful major gift program at say, the university mm. and education compared to bringing that into more healthcare and research? Um, look, I don't think a lot of differences in the, the strategy in, in so many ways because, you know, Major Gifts really relies very significantly on, on having something that people can believe in and inspires them and having that vision to um, go beyond where others think you can. Mm-hmm. And I think any good major gift strategy, no matter what it's for, starts with that. Um, beyond that, you know, I think otherwise, the, the probably the bigger differences have been where it's a broad organizational strategy and 
the intricacies of the organizations um, because universities are, you know, massive mm. <laughs> and they have, uh, there's a lot of politics behind, you know, where they, where they stand and what you can say and who you can promote and all these sorts of things. Where in medical research, often the focus is on the, the cause itself. Um, and I think that you, you more often than not, it's not about the people. Mm. The people want to step back more. Mm. <laughs> um, where I was always trying to bring these fantastic scientists out of their shells and, and in front of other people because I love the passion. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, you know, generally speaking, the basis for any major gift strategy is probably the same across the two. Yeah. And uh, what other areas of fundraising were key to success of the Institute in your time there? Yeah, um, probably one of the biggest ones was the connection with trusts and foundations. And so about, oh, gosh, almost half of my team's income came through trusts and foundations. Mm-hmm. And so that was a very significant area and growing. Um, the Institute has a, a great name for itself. And the, in the years I was there, what we focused on was uh, getting... Uh, becoming more articulate in how we said what we did affected the community. Mm. So early on, grant applications uh, had been very factual and science-based and everybody knows the Institute does great science, but what they were lacking was that inspiration and and what would actually happen if you did the thing. (laughs) And so we'd have, you know, the scientists say, I need money for, you know, um, a, a piece of equipment and they'd write a write in all the details for us with acronyms and you know specifications and all these sorts of things and and i had an amazing um, amazingly talented trust and foundations coordinator who was able to take that and create beautiful um, grant applications from them where she would make sure it included what needed to be done so the science scientists would feel comfortable that the application said what they needed to but also tell a story that went from why a piece of equipment that seems technical and dull um, could change the world. No, it sounds like a very rewarding time. Yeah, it was. Um, your yeah. career there. And since then, you've now moved into a consultancy role. Yes. Uh, Tisha Archer Consultancy. That's me. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, how long ago did you start that? Uh, I started that in about September last year. So I was on maternity leave from mm-hmm. Baker and... Uh, with my second child and uh, during that time I had been thinking about where my my next career step would be Uh, and I'd had a you know I had a great three years at Baker and was just getting to the point where I was you know starting to think about what else I'd like to try Mm -hmm. and I was lucky again to have two other fantastic people alongside me and one of those was Greg Campitelli who's a consultant in fundraising as well um, from Campitelli Consultancy and the other was Julia Keady who's the founder of the X Factor Collective and um, while I was on on maternity leave they both approached me and said you know would you like any work what, what's your plans in returning to work and and as I sort of got towards the end of my maternity leave I, I started to dabble in it a little bit um, and Julia was just kicking off the X Factor Collective and we'd met some 10 years ago while studying our Masters of Social mm-hmm. Investment and Philanthropy at Swinburne. And we, you know, she told me this idea she had and, and work was kicking off and she said, I have got work if you want it. So when you look back at your last year as a consultant, where do you think you've had the biggest impact for your clients? 
Um, I think the space I love is working with them on on articulating their fundraising vision. And I think that, you know, what often happens is is, uh, I have clients come to me and say, we want to raise, you know, $5 million in the next five years. Um, Can you write us a strategy on how to do that? And, And I think that, you know, well, you know, a lot of good fundraisers can write a good strategy on how to do it, but what we can't do is fundraise for, you know, write a strategy that doesn't have any real vision. And I think I love working with organisations to open their eyes to what they really want to be in the future. And so taking aside an organisational vision where it might be, a you know, a big lofty goal, it's really if you raise your $5 million, how does the world change? Um, so bringing it back to a a bit of a shorter term goal of five years or 10 years or how long your campaign's gonna be um, and saying, well, you know, at the end of this, what does it look like? Because people have made a major investment in you and and it's exciting because sometimes they, they think they know what it is, um, but what they're actually telling you is the program they're gonna run or uh, the space they're gonna operate in and not really what the outcome or the, the impact is going to be. And so I love, going through that journey with people yeah great yeah. and what have you found are some of the biggest challenges with these organizations that you work with um i think you know depending on the size of the organization it's normally the time that people can give to to fundraising activities and especially in smaller organizations or ones just starting in fundraising um you know it, it's an area that sometimes is done off the side of someone's desk mm. and even or even when there's a fundraiser it's you're going to raise five million dollars and we've got one staff member who'll go and do that and you know i think um trying to communicate the time it takes to do major gift fundraising not only to to raise a gift in that sort of engagement and cultivation and asking and stewardship you know timeline but also in the preparation and all the research that has to be done and the systems that have to be in place so you know trying to stop people from rushing and saying we just we just got to go out and fundraise is one of the biggest challenges i face um all right so tapping into your 10 years of experience now um let's say there's an organization who hasn't yet quite you know, utilized major gifts yet as a source of revenue and yeah. um, they approach you. And what are often the first steps that you take to crafting out a, a successful major gifts program? Sure. So I'd want to know any history they have, um, any major gifts they've received and get an idea of um, <clears throat> how, they're, how they're set up. So do they have any staff that they're going to, you know, put the time into this? Um, because major gifts in particular is a, a uh, people intensive form of fundraising. Uh, so, you know, you need the, <clears throat> excuse me, major gift um, fundraisers to be doing all that uh, research and strategy and planning and briefing. But then you also need the support of the board and the CEO and, you know, all your influencers that are connected to tap people on the shoulder, essentially, and open the doors for you. And I think part of the challenge is sometimes when people think they can employ a major gift fundraiser and that person will go and raise all the money and they can um, step back and let that happen and not realize that it's a, you know, it takes everyone to make it really successful. Um, I would also want to check that they've, um, they've, put some funds behind it and cost money to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need, you know, you need your database well set up. You need your people, you need um, some good collateral, a case for support and those sorts of things. Uh, so 
in saying that, going back to your vision, mm. <laughs> you know, always come back to why um, major your fundraising isn't business as usual in a lot of cases. It's not, uh, you know, especially when you get into the really big gifts. You, people don't give a million dollars so you can keep doing what you're doing very often. They give you a million dollars because you're going to do something that's, you know, really specky. And mm. so I think, that, you know, trying to get an idea for them of why they're doing it is really important early on um, and then the strategy once you've got that why you're doing it and you a better understanding of the resources behind it and the engagement internally and being part of it then the strategy flows a bit more easily yeah i don't think yeah. there's going to be a black and white answer to this next one but <clears throat> do you often are they a major gift donors often drawn into the you know the problem in terms mm -hmm. of um, the emotional side and feeling for the people uh, that you're presenting them with in the collateral yeah. or are they more drawn in through the solution and how their gift will make an impact i i believe that the biggest gifts come from the impact you could make mm -hmm. and the and that way you inspire people to what the work will look like if you get it right yeah and i think i learned that through the particularly in the medical research space um, because medical research takes a long time mm -hmm. and you have to fail a thousand times before you succeed uh, because every time, you know, people give funds to find out if this works. Uh, but articulating that if it doesn't work, you're, you're one step closer to the working thing, mm -hmm. you know, and so your money wasn't wasted. It's actually taking us a step closer. And, and I think that um, there's, you know, donors who are inspired by what could be are more likely to work towards that problems can seem overwhelming and especially you know again in the medical research space if you say well you know a person dies every 12 minutes from heart disease you know <laughs> how i can't give enough to stop that happening you know and and people become overwhelmed with the problem and they don't think that they can make enough of an impact you know if you're telling people heart disease costs 12 billion dollars a year in australia you know don't quote me on that figure, yeah, but yeah. billions in Australia every year, then how can my $100,000 donation make any difference to that? You know, it's too big. Whereas if you, you talk about um, research being undertaken and what the world looks like, that you could have a test to diagnose this thing, that you go to your GP within 10 years if we had $10 million, then that's one thing and one future and it starts with your gift of this, mm. um, then it's it's just much more inspiring. Yeah, tying yeah. it back into the vision of seeing that yeah. sort of pattern that you're saying there. Mm. Um, you did also mention the CEO and the board members, getting them on board. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that that could be one of the most biggest barriers mm. to what you do as a major yeah. uh, gift, in terms of major gift programs. Mm. Do you have specific examples of how CEOs <laughs> and board members block major gift programs yeah um look i've i've had ceos and board members who are amazing and they jump in and they'll give it everything they can and i've been lucky in, in most organizations i've worked with to have that where i've had block, blockages is where we've had um, in a variety of different organizations who i consult with and have worked with but where we've had board members who say oh yeah i'll help you but if you think i'm going to tap all my friends on the shoulder i'm not um, so, you know, you're talking about generally very influential people with good networks saying, I don't want to invite my friends to be part of this. Mm. Um, that's a real challenge. And I think that, you know, if, if they're not willing to ask people they know to support it, why would anyone support it? Mm. Um, another one is, is where 
they think that, um, you know, the aim is to raise money, not spend money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so resourcing becomes an issue. And they, you know, if they're challenging every expenditure in a, a major gift um, program, that can be really difficult, especially um, and relating to the next one, which is time, um, especially where sometimes to establish a connection to someone, to cultivate them and engage them can take months or years. Mm. And there's annual targets. And if the annual targets aren't met, there's a, well, we're not gonna keep investing because you didn't meet the targets. Mm. That can be a real challenge. Um, because as we know, you don't know, people have good years and bad years, and sometimes they give big and sometimes they hold back. And um, you know, I've had ones where board, boards and executive are really challenging the validity of a campaign because it didn't reach a target at the end of the year, but we knew a major gift was coming in three months. Oh, yeah. It, because we've done all the work for that year, but it didn't reach that financial year, you know. Right. And so I think you know they they can hinder it by being stuck on on timing um, and rushing. Mm. Again, people rushing to get an outcome of, uh, you know, I've had board members who are enthusiastic, causing problems because they've gone and asked people without any strategy to ask them. Right. And oh, he's a mate of mine, and I'll ask him, and it's great. He runs a big foundation, and they give heaps of money, and. And they call them and say, will you give to this thing? Mm. And they say, no, I have a, a giving strategy and you have to contact me at this time of the year and, and this is unprofessional and this is not how I work and I won't give to it. Yeah. Um, and so where they, they, if they're over-enthusiastic but uninformed or under-informed, that can be a real challenge too. You also love telling a powerful story. Mm. So what goes into crafting a powerful story and how do you connect that with donors and supporters? Sure. Um, the way I normally do it with the organizations I work with is I spend a, a full day with them and I ask them to bring uh, their CEO, a couple of people from the board, some key people from their team, any volunteers they like and have a room full of people. And you know, spend, we spend a few hours in the morning talking about what it is to fundraise and, and um, what, why it's important to have a story. Uh, and then we talk about, we spend some time uh, in the afternoon workshopping and talking about, you know, those sorts of areas of um, what's, what's your goals? What are your big goals? Fundraising wise, but organizationally too. Um, what do you do that's fantastic? What, what's the proof that you're the right people to invest in? And from there, we, we start to um, narrow down to impact statements for the key areas of their strategic plan. So we look at their strategic plan and they, often they'll have three key things that they want to achieve and we pull those up and we say, if you could achieve one impact in that area, what would it be? And you know, I make them come up with some sort of measurable statement. So by 2030, we will decrease this problem by 30%. Um, and from there, we kind of, building these these um, impact statements and then say, well, if you achieve all these things, what does the world look like? And then we come up with a, a fundraising vision. And from there, we can you know tell the story because we've talked about proof points. So there's our case studies. We've, um, we've got the, the people in the room who, who now are all advocates for what you've come up with. And that's, you know, I always say the more the merrier in the room. And it can be, you know, fun to facilitate if there's lots of opinions, but the more opinions are better because what you have at the end of the day is often a, 
hopefully at the end of the day, um, is often a statement that everyone in that room says, yeah, that's why we need to fundraise. Yeah. That's what it's for. And so you've straight away got all your advocates and you're not going, when they start that fundraising program or um, campaign, all those people agree that that's what it's for. So they go back into the organization and advocate for it to everyone else and suddenly you have everyone on board for the vision that you've set. Um, and that in itself starts the story because those people feel passionate. They understand where it's come from and why it's come to that point. You've done facts and figures around it and you've got your stats because everyone's brought, you know, they always come with stats to these things. (laughs) (laughs) We impact this many people, we see this many and this many achieve that. And and so you you end up with this sort of great, big, hairy, audacious goal for your your fundraising vision, but also all those bits underneath that have come out through the day. And and from there, you know, it's, it's about having your overall version of your story, the why we exist and what we're going to achieve, but also knowing how to tailor that for your different audiences mm. and being able to sit in any given per- in front of any given person and say, I know you believe in this pillar of what we do and so the story I tell you is this version of it um, because that's what will connect with you because you like to see immediate impact or you like a long-term vision or whatever it might be. and. And sort of making sure people know how to tell a story in several different ways. Yeah. yeah. So you talk about telling the story to different audiences. Mm. How do you often segment different audiences? Um, depends on the organisation mm. and and who they're dealing with. Um, I mean, obviously you can you can do it financially. Mm. On they're going to give two thousand or two million, mm. and so you know someone who's going to give two thousand is probably going to want to see more um, immediate impact of my funds are going to this thing and it's building up to make this thing. Um, Whereas $2 million can often have people looking at something grander and where they, you know, a a much bigger story um, rather than something that's more achievable. Uh, I think, you know, if you go to someone who's going to give $2,000 and tell them about this world-changing, massive thing, they're just going to think their money's just part of a a machine and it's you know it's not going to contribute enough Mm. Um, so I think you you tailor your story to each audience based on what they want Mm. (laughs) you know what are they what do they really want to be supporting Uh, in universities that you know you you can look at in this way do they want to give a student a scholarship and meet a student so is the story about this amazing student Mm. or is it about the research they're doing because it's going to solve this problem in the world um, so you know it, a grander thing or is it about um, having a name on the wall so let's buy the equipment or build the building that this you know student and work will be done in and so you know it's those different levels and and different um, ways that people like to be engaged in their giving and how they like to be recognized for it as well yeah, yeah great and how do you often adjust your story from acquisition to converting to RG and nurturing? Yeah, Um, I think, you know, the the way I always tell a story is you start with the the biggest thing possible. Mm. Um, Imagine a world where, you know, something amazing is going to happen Um, and then you bring it back. And depending on whether you're sort of at, at those various stages, you might, um, because acquisition is often a smaller gift, 
a, a quick and obvious reason to give. Um, you know, I'm reading this letter, I'm on this phone call, I've just got this email. What's the quick and urgent reason I give? You know, you want to tell something pretty succinctly, um, pretty factually, and with and all that sort of um, inspirational and emotional content to make you go, okay, I see urgency, I see it, and I'm going to just click the button mm. and give. Um, in that regular gift space, you've, you've got to tell a story of ongoing you know, um, improvement or ongoing success or um, ongoing growth. Mm. And so I think people want to see, you know, I've given over this period of time and when I started you were here and now you're here. Mm. They want to see where, you he- where you're going, where you've come from and, and where you're going to be in years to come. And in the uh, major gift space, it's, it's back to that big world of all the things that could be. Um, if we dream a little bigger and push a little further and you give a little more, um, you know, how, how can the world really be different? So it does change um, in not just the content, but in how you deliver it as well. You know, we go from this you know, acquisition of, which is commonly emails, phone, maybe a quick meeting at an event and those sorts of things mm-hmm. to um, ongoing communication to very personalized strategies where you hope as much of it can be face-to-face as possible. Yeah, great. Yeah. And what's some examples of um, your most favorite stories that you've seen other cause-driven organizations do? Um, I, you know, I think there's some amazing organizations out there and you know, some of the stories at, at Baker were were phenomenal and, um, and I love, you know, one of the stories we, we had there was uh, imagine a world where um, no one died of a heart attack. Mm. And imagine you could just go to your GP and have a test and they tell you if you have a heart attack in the next 10 years. Mm. And because you can have that test and you can find out if you're not going to, so you can relax mm. because if you've got a family history, you want to know you're not going to. But if you do, uh, if you, you do have that risk, that you can do something about it right now before you ever suffer a symptom. Now, most people know someone who've had a, who's had a heart attack. You know, my dad had a heart attack. Um, and I think when you have that kind of connection, people start to go, but how? How can that happen? And there it was, we, we needed a, a special machine, you know, big, expensive special machine. And with that, the scientists, thought he could see, um, it was an MRI for a mouse, um, but he thought he could see in a mouse the, the plaque in your heart that will is stable and see it differently to the plaque in your heart that's unstable and it will break off and cause a heart attack. And it'll cost millions of dollars to eliminate heart attack, but with $4 million, he can see the difference between these two. And if you can see the difference between, between these two, then he can create a test for it. Mm. And that'll take time, and it'll take money, and all these sorts of things. But people can be part of that. And I love telling that story to people because they could they could see that this world isn't that far away. And you can probably never eliminate a heart attack because people won't go and have the test. That's human nature. Mm. But if you could say, if you've had the test, you, you won't have a heart attack. Imagine that. You know, and I love that sort of story. I mean, I love what the universities are doing. University of Sydney and University of Melbourne are doing amazing things. And 
the way, you know, I, I remember hearing um, one of the representatives from the University of Melbourne speak at a conference and he was talking about their campaign and the, the successes and failures of it and essentially what no one knew is is they launched it and it didn't go well because they didn't have all their messaging right and it was very internally focused on what they needed rather than what they could achieve and and these sorts of things and i love the way that these two big universities which are heading towards billion dollar campaigns you know they're not talking about a test for um you know a, a test for sight they're talking about curing world blindness and they're not talking about a special kind of swag they can make. They're talking about eliminating homelessness. And I think, you know, the, this changing language from, oh, we need a fellowship to support someone who's going to, you know, build, make a test that does a thing. You know, they're not talking about the fellowship they need anymore. They're talking about the thing that's going to be achieved from it. And I love that shift. And you know, I use them as examples quite a bit in my work to say to people, we've got to get beyond the thing you need. Um, money for people or fellowships or equipment or buildings into what comes out of the building or the fellowship and how how does it affect me if i'm the donor what does it do for me and how does it make my world better um personalizing in that way and not because donors are selfish and want it to be about them but because they'll connect you know if i can see that you know my friend who has been sick could be better then I'm going to say, oh, you know, I want, I want to be part of something like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really powerful stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> now that you're working as a consultant role, you're still very heavily involved with uh, the Brave Foundation. Yes. So nearly five years now, you've been a non-exec director role there. Yeah. I think two of those years you're uh, on the chair of the fundraising yeah, committee. That's right, yep. So what does this organization mean to you and how have you played a role in their success yeah um brave foundation is an amazing organization and what they do is they um, support expecting and parenting teens in australia and there's you know 26 odd thousand of them in australia so while people don't think this is a a big thing it, it is and at the moment there's you know, Brave is the, the peak organisation who connects a lot of the dots for, for young people facing a massive challenge in their life where there's a lot of stigma attached to it. Um, my work with Brave has been phenomenal. Um, when I started, they were, a, you know, a small organisation. Um, they're about to celebrate their 10-year anniversary on Wednesday, but most people think it was it's only two years old because it was, you know, launched nationally only a couple of years ago. And... And, but Bernadette Black, the the founder and CEO, um, was a was a teen parent herself, and you know recognised the lack of support out there for people who um, had decided to have a baby, um, you know, found themselves pregnant, and then decided to that they wanted to to have the child, and and what was out there for them, and um, and in that time, in that five years that I've been with them, it's gone from an organisation that had volunteers and quite an operational board uh, who were just helping to get stuff done into one that's, um, you know, got, gosh, lots of stuff mm-hmm. now and, and mentors in uh, most states in Australia. And they've recently been given a, a $4 million government grant uh, last year for a try, test and learn program for supporting expecting and parenting teens. So there's mentors across the country working with a um, couple hundred teenagers at the moment and, and you know, just providing them with what people think is probably already being provided to people, which is 
access to education because a lot of them want to continue education but don't know how to when they've got a baby um, or when they're pregnant even Um, you know connecting them with health services uh, helping people find homes because some of them find themselves homeless um, when they when they become pregnant Um, helping them in abusive family situations and all sorts of things so this you know it's an organization doing phenomenal work um, I, I help them with a bit of fundraising uh, activities and provide advice to them, um, support them in these these government and, and trust and foundation grant applications and those sorts of things in any way I can. Mm. Um, yeah, it's an exciting place to be part of. So that's been the main key to their success around the grant applications? Yeah, they, they you know, um, that's where the funds have come from. Their key success is the people. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bernie, Bernadette Black, she is a phenomenal pioneer. Um, she just, she has a vision and she goes for it, hmm. um, puts everything into Brave Foundation. Uh, the inaugural chair um, of the board um, from the launch was uh, the former premier of Tasmania, David Bartlett, who's the child of a, a teen parent himself and um and has was adopted and he he also had the passion and and opened up every door um he could for the organization and and the board members and and board chairs prior to david and the the formal national launch were so dedicated you know putting hours and hours and hours of of work um in in advice in advice and strategic planning but also sometimes getting their hands dirty and getting out there and um you know really advocating for the organization and i think that bernie's uh the, the success of brave foundation and bernie's success um has come from the great people she surrounded herself with and she's Tasmanian Australian of the Year this year. So, oh, wow. yeah, so, you know, she's gone from, from a start where people would have said, oh, you know, her life's over into one where she, she went finished school with a little child, got a degree, um, was Bernardo's Mother of the Year some years ago and now Tasmanian Australian of the Year. And, and all of us who I've known her for a long time and all of us who've known her through some of this journey you know, when we're watching the Australian of the Year presentations and she's sitting in the audience, you know, you're just amazing, mm-hmm. amazing people who are just so filled with passion and just want a better world for people who don't have it so good right now. It yeah, sounds like mm. a great organisation. Where would you like to see the Brave Foundation in five to ten years? Oh, gosh, I'd love to see it fully national, <laughs> um, you know, in, in every state and territory. Uh, at the moment, we're trialling trialing that to some extent um i'd love to see it uh you know while while the government support is amazing that they're getting federal government now i'd like to see it not reliant on that to make it happen and and we're in the process of opening up some of those pathways and and exploring um what comes next so it's a really exciting time there's some big growth ahead for for brave i think and uh and I hope that it'll just continue to reach more and more people and, and grow and grow. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like quite a progressive organisation. Yeah, and it's moving fast, yeah. you know. it's uh, It had sort of um, eight years of uh, gestation and now it's like here and alive and, and growing quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when you look at the success of the Brave Foundation, mm-hmm. where do you think other organisations are missing an opportunity? Um, you know, I think people don't mm-hmm. use their networks well enough. 
Um, they, you know, and I, I think again, it comes back to rushing. Oh, we've got to ask someone to support us or bring them in or whatever. And and there's not enough thought and and planning that goes in to what what's happening. Like I said, you know, Brave had years and years of um, getting to understand what it wanted to achieve um, from you know Bernie being uh, you know quite young and writing a book that it was her sort of first goal and and seeing where it could go and just taking the time you know when we applied for the government grant at the start of last year or the year before, end of like the year before we didn't just say oh we were just put in for this you know we did a lot of we did months and months and months of research and um, focus groups and planning and writing and rewriting and writing and rewriting and and you know it it wasn't an overnight success. It was really a, a very strategic process. And I think because we gave it that time, when the time came to ask for the, what we wanted to do, we knew exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think so many organizations could put twice as much time into their planning and half as much time into what comes out of it later. Yeah. You know? uh, because if you, get it, if you get the planning right, the rest flows pretty nicely. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good way of putting yeah. it. Um, so what do you think will change most in the fundraising profession in the next 10 years? Um, I think it'll become more and more personalized on all accounts, no matter which area of fundraising you're in. Um, I think in the major gift space especially, it'll become, uh, I guess, more donor-driven in that I think people give, you know, even like in the 10 years I've been working in this industry, I think people give quite differently. Um, you know, earlier on, I think there was, there was, especially from um, high net worth individuals and even some of the trusted foundations, there was a, we'll give to you and you'd go and do your good things. Mm-hmm. And now what I, I think I see more and more is, is people wanting to be engaged and they want to be kept informed and they sometimes, you know, they want to volunteer or they want to actually do things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really exciting um, where people, you know, can uh, be part of it, not just a facilitator of it. Mm. And, and I, I'd like to see it move more in that way, and I think it will. I think uh, for organisations, it's going to become a standard um, practice. Mm. And, you know, across the board, I think in corporates, it's going to become more and more likely that you have to have a, a philanthropic area that your your organization gives Um, and I think that for the other side of the the coin um, with those seeking funds that every other organization is going to be saying well what's our fundraising strategy and more and more of them are going to become reliant on the income from it and you know in my time even at the medical research institutes they you know um, and the university um, Menzies for example was went from 15% 15% of its annual income was from fundraising to 25% over a few years. And so, you know, it, it's not an alternative funding stream anymore. It's a funding stream mm-hmm. and without it, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the reliance on fundraising will, will grow and grow. But I think, you know, giving in Australia is growing and growing and it will, it will match. Um, people are becoming um, more inclined to give and, and give for impact. And I think that's, you know, exciting times for Australia. Yeah, great. So when you look back on your career, what are you hoping to have achieved? Um, 
I'm just hoping to be able to say, I can't believe they've done that thing. Imagine, we couldn't have imagined that when I was back there doing that thing, you know, Um, or when we spoke about that lofty goal 20 years ago, can you believe it's been achieved? You know, I'd love, I'd love to be um, just seeing the organizations I've worked with and so many others saying we need a new vision statement because we've ticked that one off um you know and and i think that's really exciting and and that's the space with brave at the moment which is exciting you know we're, we're saying well the vision is um somewhat achieved you know what comes next what's the next big thing and and i'd love to just maybe be able to say i had my little piece a, a researcher once said to me medical research is like a jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. and everyone doing research into your area in the world has a piece and they all put their piece in the puzzle. And of course you hope to be the person to put the last piece in the puzzle that goes ding and yeah. you know, I found the cure or the whatever to make change. Um, I just, I'd like to think that later on I've put a lot of pieces in a lot of people's jigsaw puzzles. Yeah, yeah great, yeah. <laughs> great answer. Um, so Tisha from Tisha Archie Consulting, what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? Um, I just love it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I think we work in an industry where you can be so proud of what you achieve. And I know from outside, you say I work in fundraising and people cringe and think of, you know, someone standing out in front of their supermarket, you know, talking to them on the way in, mm-hmm. saying, oh, your boots are lovely or whatever it is. Um, and all, all these valid areas of fundraising and people kind of go, oh, really? Um, but we connect people of means to amazing courses. And and I love that, um, that look people have when they're, achieve something great or given to something that's going to do great things and and so i think be proud of it i think the more um we sort of stand up and say this is a a field that people want to work in and you should be proud of working in the more successful we'll be able to be and i love what you're doing with this connecting fundraisers Mm -hmm. because it's a small world and and in my space in major gift fundraising it's a really small world Mm -hmm. um and I'd like to see a lot more uh, people who maybe like me, who've got the marketing comms background or, um, you know, love working with people, uh, are passionate about things they believe in, thinking this is a, a great area to work in. And so share the love. Mm. Yeah. Great advice, <laughs> yeah. Tisha. Thank you very much. Thank for you. Coming. Uh,